Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Ephesians chapter 4. We are uh, continuing on in our series. Well, the overall series is Acts. We're studying through the book of Acts. The series that we're in right now within the series is called Positioning for Power. And then the series within the series within the series is the right place. This is basically Inception right now. And so we're in a series entitled, um, again, Positioning for Power. And what we're doing here, uh, overarching, is we're studying through the book of Acts. We got to verse 12 of chapter 1, and it talks about how the disciples were gathered in the right place with the right people doing the right practices. And in that, then, they were positioning themselves for the Holy Spirit's power that was going to fall. And what we've been doing then is just walking through each of those points, and in the right place, we've been talking about what does it look like to be the right place? For those of us who are part of this church family, for those of you who might be looking for a church family, what does it look like to be a right place? And so we came up with this little chart, and in that chart, we have five describers of what it is to be the right place. Number one is the place of truth or biblical doctrine, sound biblical doctrine, as um, opposed to heresy, which is teaching of untrue biblical doctrine. Uh, second is being a place of the true gospel, not a false gospel. And I laid out a couple of those false gospels. You can go back and uh, if you missed any of this, you can catch on podcast or YouTube. And then number three, what I talked about last week is being a place of love uh, because truth is important. Doctrine is important. We believe in truth. We believe in the scriptures. Uh, but the scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if we have not love, then we are nothing. Uh, and so on, on truth and on doctrine, then we wrap that up in the love, the gospel love of Christ. And so that's where we ended up last week. And now today what we're going to do, uh, last week was a, a bit of a, a heart check for all of us. Uh, and today is slightly more practical or maybe more academic, um, practical academia. And what we want to do is talk about the structure in which this all needs to operate. And so number four on the line is this, a godly structure versus a worldly structure. And for this sermon, I think, to have its great impact, we need to first understand what is at stake. And what is at stake is exactly what we just prayed, that the church would be the church that Jesus came to plant. For the church that Jesus had in mind was a powerful church. It was a spirit-empowered church. It was a church that brings good news to the world, a church that ushers in the kingdom of God. And all of these things that we're talking about are part of that, and this one is too. And uh, what we're talking about is the structure of the church. Let me give you an example. I've talked often about my uh, obsession, addiction, whatever you want, with puppy chow. It is the world's greatest dessert. And the issue is, no matter how much you put in front of me, I will eat that much. And when it comes to making puppy chow, the ingredients are important. If you have the wrong kind of peanut butter, your puppy chow is not going to be quite as good. Uh, you want the right type of corn checks to mix with the peanut butter, the chocolate, the powdered sugar, and everything. Now, if we had all of our ingredients out and it was time to make puppy chow, which is obviously a good time, the structure of what you put the ingredients in matters. If I put it in a cup, right, a small mug, right, you're, you might have some good puppy chow in the mug, but you're going to have a mess everywhere else, or you're just going to have a very small amount of puppy chow, which is disappointing. If you put it on the table, put it on the table, throw it all out there, it's all on the, out on your kitchen table, right? Um, my son August spends half of his day on our kitchen table, so he would love this, but there would be a mess everywhere. If you put it in a fish tank that has water in it, that's gross, right? Soggy peanut butter is horrible, then you throw in all of that stuff, you just throw it in the fish tank, and it's like, oh, I have all of these beautiful ingredients, but the structure that is now holding those ingredients are ruining 
the ingredients. So what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to find the largest mixing bowl that you have. You throw all of the ingredients in there. You form it all together, and out comes the greatest next hour of your life, right? That's, you savor everybody, right? And you enjoy it. Why? Because the right ingredients now are in the right structure, and so it can be properly taken care of or properly enjoyed. And the same is true for the church. Heresy, bad, kick it out. True doctrine, believing in the scriptures, operating in love. It's all important. And then what is it supposed to do? It's supposed to operate within the right structure. Now, the scriptures are actually very clear. And much of the book of Acts, uh, especially early on in the book of Acts, it's kind of like seeing puppy chow made on the table. It's delicious, and there's a lot of it, and it's covering up the whole table, but it's kind of chaotic. I mean, at certain points, thousands of people are being added into the church. Uh, And there's doctrinal disputes that they have to deal with, and then there's little leadership tensions and things that they have to solve, and a lot of that we'll study as we continue to read through the book of Acts. Uh, But at some point in time, what happens is Paul realizes we've got to put some order and some structure into this. Otherwise, this incredible thing is just going to be a mess. And so in Titus chapter 2, actually Titus chapter 1, Paul lays out an early instruction to the church. And I'll read it to you as soon as I find Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 says this. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. What remained? A beautiful church, a move of God. Like the gospel was going on. People's lives are being changed by the love of Jesus Christ. And he goes, okay, this is awesome. And there's growth and there's movement. And look at all of this. And he says, okay, now, now, put this structure in place. And so this morning, I want to talk about what is the proper structure of the church. And I want to talk about it, not so that it's just academic, but I want to talk about it so that you and I might commit to it and might commit to operating in it so that we can see the church be what it is supposed to be and have the results that it is supposed to have. And so that's why this morning we're spending some time in this. And we're going to do it under four questions, four questions on structure of the church. And uh, question number one is this, who is in charge? Question number two is who does what? Question number three, what is the attitude? Like what is the attitude as we're doing the what? And question number four, what are the results? What are the results? So these four questions will help us begin to understand. Now, for some of you, you've been around for redemption for a long time, and so some of this will be review or catch up. Others of you, you are new or you are newish, and this morning what you get to do uh, is hear a little bit about how we operate, and let me just give you a hint, the way we operate is as best as we can as humans who are imperfect is submitting ourselves to what the scripture says and then just trying to do what it says and the structure that it is put in place. Question number one asks this, who is in charge? Hint, the answer is not me. Also, the answer is not you. It's not us. Around here, how do we say it? We say it this way, that this is God's church. We have seven values around here, and this is our first stated value, that this is God's church. And uh, Many of you have probably heard the story of the, uh, the, how this statement came to be. Uh, early on, our founding elder, elders, Frank, Tom, excuse me, Frank, Tom, uh, Joe, and myself, we were sitting around and we were chatting through what this was going to look like and all of that. And uh, Frank uh, sat down with us and he said, hey, before we go any further, I just want to make sure that all of us agree on something, that if we're going to do this together, that this is going to be God's church. And he said, Stephen, it's not yours. It's not you and Lindsay's. It's not ours. It's 
gods. And so from the beginning, that has been a phrase that has just kept coming up. And then a couple of years ago, we really kind of leaned into it. Like we put it on a t-shirt. Some of you are wearing it this morning, probably. And it has become something. It's literally written on the wall. And, and what does it mean? It's much more than just a statement that we write on a wall. It, it really is the founding principle of how we view what we get to experience here. And that is this. It's not mine. And it's not yours. And maybe you think, okay, but isn't that pretty obvious? Uh, and, and, and maybe it is pretty obvious, but something has snuck into our church culture. I don't know how long this has been around where the personal pronoun my has become very predominant within the context of the church. My church, our church, how's your church doing? Well, my church is this, my church is that. And it becomes a very personally possessive thing. It's not mine. It's not mine. Someday I will be done and this place will keep going. It's his church. It's his church. And so this has become, uh, and here's how this is probably most important. When it's his church, guess what? It's his rules. His house, his rules. Some of you have said that to your kids, right? His house, his rules. Which is we don't get to look and go, okay, how do we want to do this? No, no, no. What he already laid out, we have to follow. And what he laid out was a structure that was supposed to keep all of the good that the church is supposed to be, family, us loving and serving each other, us growing deeper into Christ, us letting the gospel come out of us, us getting to use our spiritual gifts in a way that serve each other, us being an example, right, uh, or a place that other people can come and find hope, right? Like, like all of the good things of the church, he created this structure so that it would grow and it would thrive, And it starts with that idea, this is his church. Jesus said it this way, I will build my church. I will build my church. He was taking possession there. God, uh, the Father in the Old Testament, asked the Israelites this question one day, what kind of house will you build for me? And when he said house, he meant church. Uh, This was in Chronicles. uh, And then we also see this repeated in Acts. What kind of house, what kind of church will you build for me? And in there, we see the kind of this um, interesting uh, little nuance where uh, Jesus is saying, I will build my church. And then God is asking, what kind of house or church will you build for me? And so it's like, well, who who does the building? Is it Jesus or is it us? Like, Like, which one? And the house that we build, by the way, matters because God said, what kind of house will you build for me? And here's how I like to look at it. Jesus is the GC. He's the general contractor. It's his project. He's going to fund it, uh, and he's ultimately going to decide what is built, and he has already decided what is going uh, to be built and how he wants it to look. And like any good GC, then he hires people and brings them in and lets them do part of the work. And we get to be part of that work under the headship of Christ. As I've said often, uh, this, that if it is the church that Jesus came to plant, then the first thing that must be true is Jesus must be in charge. For if Jesus is not in charge, then it's not the church that he came to plant. And if it's not the church that he came to plant, then we can't pray for the things that we see happening in here because it's his church. It's his church. And so we submit to him. And over the years, what this has meant is there are times when uh, the elders and I or the staff and I or even all of us as a congregation will say, like, God, what do you want us to do next, right? And and so we'll come up with our plans and we'll come up with our ideas. And uh, for those of you who come to the Next Steps class, I'll share with you the story of how we found this building and how this building found us is really more accurate. And, And all of that and how in that season, it was all about, God, this is your church. And so help us as we walk through this process. And we've come back to that over and over and over. So it isn't just on the t-shirt. 
It is the bedrock foundation. This is his church. So he is in charge. The question number two then is this though. Well, who does what? Who does what? And the answer to the question, who does what, is in major part what differentiates the church from every other organization, business, nonprofit, entity, group of people that exists. That the church, through the instruction of the, uh, the scriptures, has been given a very clear model for who is supposed to do what. And then, as we in the church are supposed to operate under that, who is supposed to do what, so that we might see the what that we see in here. So here is who does what. I have four answers to the question, who does what. In uh, Acts 1.8, which is our memory verse for January, uh, by the way, you can get your January, February, and March memory verse cards. They're all out in the lobby. Uh, and so if you need those, March is coming here, uh, then you can grab those. We can continue to, to memorize these. Uh, but in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, but you will receive what? Power. When what? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so the first question of who does what is this? The Holy Spirit brings the power. The Holy Spirit brings the power. It's his job to empower this whole thing. It, uh, it's not our jobs to, to, to bring power. It's the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. Acts chapter, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11 says this. All these, and the these is referring to the saints who do all of the work of ministry. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Holy Spirit brings the power. Now, how does the Holy Spirit bring the power? He does it through his servants, through people like you and I operating out of our giftedness, but it is he who brings the power. What does that mean? It means when we were just uh, experiencing worship, and I, I love the worship culture that we have here as a church. When we were experiencing worship, it was the Holy Spirit, and clearly in that moment, we could sense it and feel it. The Holy Spirit bringing power. It was, uh, it was God, yes, using uh, his people, using the band that was up here, the musicians that were up here, right? But it is the Holy Spirit that ushers in his presence. And some of us, we've been to concerts, and you get goosebumps, and you've been in moments, and you're like, that was moving, right? But Holy Spirit power is different. It's different. It's not just about how did you feel. It is about how you feel at times, but it's not just about that. Because when Holy Spirit power moves, it doesn't just motivate you, it moves you. It changes you. It changes you. So the Holy Spirit brings the power. You know, one of the ways that we can begin to practice this in our own lives, and one of the conversations we've had as a church staff is this, um, the, the normal trajectory of church and I don't want to say anything that I will have to unsay in the future, but oftentimes the normal trajectory of church, at least in our modern day, is this, that the bigger we get and the larger we get, the more glamorous all of this gets. One of the conversations we've had is like, what if it was the opposite? What if the bigger we got, the less we needed? Like, what if it was just one day Lindsay just coming out here, she would hate this <laughs> by herself. I didn't even have a guitar. And just sat and sang. And we would weep or shout for joy because the Holy Spirit brings the power. And none of this stuff is bad. None of this stuff is sinful. None of it is wrong. But we have to remember the Holy Spirit brings the power. Many of you have asked me, how can I pray for you? I have no greater prayer when it comes to this than would you just pray that the Holy Spirit would use me? That's it. Like, that's, 
because that's my job in this. And, and I've learned, I mean, I've been doing this for six, I'm going into my 16th year, guys, of doing this. And I've learned that there are certain sermons that I get up and I'm like, this is so powerful. And as soon as that thought comes into my head, <laughs> I look at all of your faces and you all go, no, it wasn't. <laughs> and there are other moments when I show up and I go, well, God, I guess you'll have to do this one because I got nothing. And he goes, what do you think happened every other time, moron? <laughs> and then he just moves. He moves. The Holy Spirit brings the power. That's number one. Who does what? The Holy Spirit brings the power. Number two, elders provide leadership. Elders provide leadership. Now, for some of you in church who aren't maybe familiar with church context, like this word elder is a biblical word. It doesn't just mean old person. It, it, it means... We, Never mind. Okay, so um, in, in the church context, what the term elder means is, is appointed spiritual leader. And it's important. And we use this term. And you want to know why we use this term? Because it's in the Bible. And it has gotten very popular in, in current church culture, uh, right, to, to not use this term. Oh, that's, a spirit, that's too spiritual of a term. People won't understand that. And so we don't have an elder team. We have an executive leadership team. And, uh, and I remember getting in a conversation with somebody about this once, and they said, you still use the term elder? And they said, why do you use that? I said, because it's in the Bible. And we think that's important. And there's a difference. There's a difference between elder and executive leaders, there's a difference between leading in the church and leading outside of it. And so we use this term elders and we have elders in our church, right? We currently have three. Um, two of them would be like unpaid non-staff elders and then myself and the three of us are operated as the elders of the church. And why is it different? Well, one, the qualifications are different than an elder versus a, a spiritual leader or, or I'm sorry, just a leader, like, like the qualifications of a leader, we know what those are, right? Like when you want to find a leader nowadays, what do you do? You're like, well, what's your Myers-Briggs? And, uh, you know, where's your strength finder? And, and you have 17 different tests and 14 different books that you've read and all of this. And you're that kind of leader. That's not how it is in the church. In fact, the, the qualifications for, for leadership in the church, they're all character. They're all character, not talent. And so we have elders, and so the qualifications are different. The expectations are different. When I say the expectations are different, I mean in part like the expectations of like when you step into leadership. And by the way, Paul does write that aspiring to spiritual leadership is a noble thing. And so I hope that our church becomes a place that does have people who rightfully aspire to that, uh, whether they stay here or they're released here. This is why we do everything we do like in our kids' ministry and our youth ministry so that we might be a trainer up of spiritual leaders who have these traits and also know the scriptures and would release them. But the expectations are different. Like when you get promoted in your work environment, when you get promoted to high corporate leadership or business leadership, what are your expectations then? Profit share, perks. Like what are the perks of, of, of spiritual leadership? Well, Christ was the founding elder and he got killed. He gave up everything. That was his perk. The 11 disciples, Judas, something else happened to him. But the other 11 they all got killed for it. Well, 10 of them, you argue about John, who knows? Maybe still alive on an island with JFK, who knows? Point is this, I'm not opening the conspiracy thing. Okay, we're done, move on, okay? They got killed for it. Those were the perks. The, the perks of spiritual leadership are you lower yourself more and more. You humble yourself more and more. You give of yourself more and more. You acknowledge 
your own frailty and sinfulness more and more and your absolute utter need for Christ more and more. And so elders are to provide leadership. And that's what um, Paul was telling Titus there. He's like, okay, this is crazy. God is moving and there's, and there's growth and there's all of this cool stuff happening and we want to see it continue to happen. And so he says, appoint elders in every town or uh, we would understand that in every church, make sure that elders are appointed and that they provide this needed spiritual leadership. And just, by the way, around here, uh, one of the cool things that God has done is our elders, we, we span almost 20 years all the way. And so Frank is in his 70s, Tom is in his 50s, I'm in my 30s, and we're all about 20 years apart. And it's been cool that God has provided that kind of different life perspective as we have journeyed through this together. And this is all part of the structure that he wanted to put in place. Why? So that it might accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. Number three, then, who else does what? Well, spiritual leaders then equip. Now, in 2022, I don't think Paul could have ever foreseen this day. Um, our spiritual leaders, uh, like uh, our people that we typically refer to as staff or key volunteers, right? Like we live in this incredible economy where we can pay people to do this full time. It's amazing. Uh, and, and so what are their jobs? Well, who does what? Spiritual leaders equip. Ephesians chapter four, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus um, that grew at a tremendous rate and then needed this structure in place. Paul writes this. He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Some people think this is five spots. Some people think this is four spots, all right? Um, we're not going to get into that argument this morning. To equip the saints, here, here's their role, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And then it goes on to say to develop spiritual maturity. And so the role then, uh, my role as the pastor of this church, the role of the other people that we bring on in a position, what is our role? It is to equip you. You guys are going to enter the story here really quickly. It is to equip you to go about doing the work of ministry. And uh, by the way, in our uh, high intense consumer culture, like sometimes we all look at this incorrectly because what we think is that our job up here is to, um, uh, at best, like to provide services, right? Um, maybe that's not the best, but in there, like to provide services or at the worst, like to say like, well, your job is to entertain me. Like, to, like, make this fun. No, no, no. What it says is, is to equip you. To equip you so that you might be about to do the work that God has called you to do. In other words, the point of this, the point of this right here, uh, right? This is not like a gladiator moment. Are you entertained? Like, this is a moment that is like, are you being equipped and then released? Not just are you consuming something, do you enjoy the service provided? No, are you being equipped so that you might be able to do what God has called you to do? That's what it is. And so my job is equipping. And man, I get, I get to do that through a lot of different ways. One of the ways is through preaching. It's one of my favorite ways to do it, that I get to come up here and I get to preach. And I look at every Sunday morning when I get an opportunity to stand in front of you and to proclaim the word of God and the truth of the gospel as my greatest moment to equip. It's my greatest moment. And so I don't look at this as like, let's make new people feel welcomed. I don't look at like, not that I don't want them to feel welcome, but like, that's not the primary purpose. I don't look at this as like, this is a rallying cry, right? This is like our weekly, like, you know, raha moment where we all get back on the same page. No, this is my job. And I believe this is what I will be judged for in heaven, that it is my number one opportunity to equip you with the work of the gospel, for the work of the gospel, to challenge you, to make you feel uncomfortable at times. To challenge, like we did last week, your love for other people. To challenge, like we did two weeks ago, like have you fallen into false doctrine? To equip you so that you might be ready to go do what God has called you to do. 
That's my job. Number four, who does what? Fourth answer, the saints, we're going to use, I love that term, the saints, through their spiritual gifts, help build the church. Here's where you come in. Your role in all of this. First uh, Corinthians chapter four, we're gonna use this term spiritual gifts. And you're like, what's a spiritual gift? Maybe you're unfamiliar with that term. Uh, the spiritual gift is simply this. It's something that God is uniquely wired in you through the Holy Spirit to bring to the table of your church. That's it. That's what a spiritual gift is. Sometimes it is in perfect alignment with your personality and your natural talents. Other times it's not. A lot of times, though, uh, it is that God brings through you. And so um, sometimes God will use, like, personality traits, people who they're not uh, a follower of Christ yet, but they have this natural talent. Then the gospel comes in and breaks into their heart. And then what God does is he takes that talent and he kind of then works it into his kingdom, right? But sometimes spiritual gifts, like, you didn't even know you had it. And all of a sudden, you stepped into Christ and you're able to do things that you didn't even know you could do, but you stepped in. Now, now you're in Christ and, like, something's coming out of you. You're like, where did this come from? The Holy Spirit brings the power, right? And so the, uh, then this is what happens, is you then, through your spiritual gift, you are about the work of building the church. That's Paul's term here. And so that you, you, by growing up in Christ, by, by rooting yourself deeper in him, by understanding truth of the scriptures better, by daily pursuing Jesus, by being faithful as you show up here every week and you are equipped more and more by then knowing your brother and sisters in Christ so you can know best how to serve them. And sometimes these gifts are used through like official capacities, like in the context. Sometimes they're just used in unofficial you being you as you connect with other people, like you have the gift of hospitality and you don't need us to coordinate a dinner for you. You just get to know people like, hey, you should come to my house because I'm hospital. I wouldn't say it that way. But you, you like invite people over and you just start serving them and loving them. And when that happens with you and you and you and you, then all of a sudden the work of God's church is like just moving. That's my job to equip. And then it's your job through the Holy Spirit's guidance to just begin to operate out of that. Look at this beautiful structure that he's put in place. And around here, one of the things that we never try to get into is, is like pushing people. Listen, I understand, like, we talk about looking for a church and all of that, and, and I get it. A lot of people that are looking for a church, like, you are just a part of another church. Like, we understand that this happens in, in church world, and we get that, and I've, you know, I've been on both sides of that my whole career, and, and everybody always is. And, but one of the things that we want to make sure, and I say this to you who are new or new-ish, like, we don't need you to hop over here, switch jerseys real quick, and just like, keep running. Like, and sometimes all you need is just like a breather. Like, you need to just rest for a second. You just need to let God, like, pour some stuff into you for a little bit. The church was fine before you showed up. We'll be fine if you take a little time. Somebody, I was meeting with somebody, like, hey, what do you need from us? And I said, nothing. Nothing. Relax. Because at the right time, what's going to happen? Oh, the Holy Spirit. Listen, I know. If you've been doing this for a while and the Holy Spirit is in you, then at the right time, you're going to know. You're going to know. And then you're going to step into it and you're going to start operating out of your gift again. And it's beautiful when the Holy Spirit has prompted you to step into it. So we don't want to force that. We don't rush that around here. We just take our time and we trust the Holy Spirit. Why? Because this is God's church. See how this all works together? 
See, oftentimes when we think, oh, it's my church or it's our church, well then, okay, well then it's our responsibility to make sure it's funded. And it's our responsibility to make sure that there's a volunteer in every spot. And so we got to preach sermons that make people give money. And we got to preach sermons that make people serve. And we got to do all of this and everything like that. And what we have learned is instead, why don't we just preach the gospel and let Jesus change people. And at the right time, they'll give. And at the right time, they'll serve. And at the right time, they'll start doing things because it's his church. It's not ours. See, Structure matters. It matters. And so it's God's church. The Holy Spirit brings the power. Elders are to provide leadership. And we've got, by the way, like, I'll take, let me take myself out of this. We have great elders. They love you guys so much, okay? Without ever receiving a penny for five and a half years, they have faithfully served this congregation. They go visit you. They drive across, you know, town to come and pray. I mean, they are incredible, Right? They, they never get to speak on stage, rarely, right? Again, they don't get paid. There's no honor in, in, in that sense other than um, the, just simply the honor of, of serving Christ. And you know what? Actually, why don't you guys just stand up real quick? Because I just want people to know who you are. Tom and Frank, why don't you guys stand up real quick? Frank's the bald one. Yeah, Tom is the best looking one. <laughs> Angie said, amen. Um, I have no idea where I'm at. Okay. No, that's cool. Okay, question three. What's the attitude? As we do this, how are we supposed to treat each other? Well, that 1 Corinthians passage, um, uh, chapter 12, right before it goes into chapter 13, it says this little line at the end. I'm going to skip the first verse in 27, but in 31 it says this, and I will show you a more excellent way. And that's when it goes into 1 Corinthians 13, by the way, which is this famous chapter on love. And what it, the chapter on love there, it's not just a marriage sermon. Like, I know we read that at weddings a lot, but that wasn't the point of it. The point of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was that this is how the church was supposed to operate. You know, please don't raise your hand here. Um, please, seriously, don't raise your hand. <laughs> you ever been hurt in church? Ever been hurt in church? Ever read 1 Corinthians 13 and go, I didn't feel that. See, the chapter is about reminding ourselves of how we have to operate within this. I think it's also to remind ourselves, and this whole structure is to remind ourselves of like, don't make too big of a deal out of yourself. Like, isn't it amazing? Like, church, churches get to a certain size here in America, and we're like, oh, yeah. Like, there are churches of 50,000 in China, 100,000 in Korea. Like, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. And if it was Jesus who built it anyway, then there's no reason to get prideful. There's no reason to freak out over little things like carpet change or whatever. Take a deep breath and love each other. Love each other. Just like it says in 1 Corinthians 13. That's the attitude that we're supposed to have. The way we say it around here is this. Real leadership serves people. Real leadership serves people. And so our aim then is this, that the higher you climb here, the lower you make yourself. And the more that you serve 
in our family, we switched. This was a big change in our household, okay? Um, we just moved from Candyland to Shoots and Ladders, okay, uh, when, when it comes to Reagan's favorite game. And um, I'm totally okay with this transition. And so we've been playing a lot of Shoots and Ladders, and I found out the only way I can beat Reagan is just to let the game go as long as possible until she quits, okay? She magically then has to go to the bathroom, then she never comes back, all right? And I crown myself winner. And so um, the other day I was working through this sermon, uh, and um, Lindsay texted me, unbeknownst to what I was working on, and I had just finished writing Shoots and Ladders in my notes, and Lindsay says, I'm playing Shoots and Ladders with Reagan. I said, oh, how's it going? She said, well, I just got the big ladder. I was like, oh boy, how'd that go? She was like, Reagan started trembling with anger. <laughs> okay, like, Argh! right? Uh, if you don't know shoots and ladders, when you get the big ladder, it shoots you up like seven rows, okay? Then you get to look down at the peasant below you and laugh, okay? <laughs> and um, so she was angry, and, and I just laughed because I thought, man, isn't that the way it is? Somebody gets the ladder, they get the inheritance, they get the bonus, they get the promotion. They get the spouse, they get the whatever. And we go, oh, God, where's mine? I keep getting these little shoots. I didn't get the raise. I, I didn't get the house. I didn't. And in the church, it's easy, by the way, to bring that attitude right into the church. I didn't get the stage. I didn't get the job. I didn't get to this. I didn't get to that. And then all of a sudden, that love that he talked about starts to disappear. And we've all seen it. Church can turn ugly and nasty. But structure matters. And so our attitude then, when it is love, when it is real leadership serves people, what happens instead? Oh, you see somebody get the ladder, and instead of trembling in anger, you rejoice in celebration for them. When you get the shoot, Right? You, you get it, and, uh, and in church leadership, you realize, like, man, my goal is just to make myself as low as possible and to elevate others as much as possible. And so whether I get the shoot or whether I get the ladder, like, I'm just going to trust God in the process. And it takes away so much what often outside of the context of the church destroys when we treat each other in this way. Now, when all of that comes together, when Jesus is in charge, when the Holy Spirit brings the power, when elders bring leadership, when spiritual leaders equip, when saints operate in their giftedness, when we all do this with real leadership serving people and loving one another, what then is the result? What is the result? Well, Paul wrote about it in Ephesians chapter 4. And so I, I kind of end today with this thought that this is then the result. He says, we're going to do this until when? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith that first there is unity amongst us and to the knowledge of the Son of God that we know more about Jesus, to mature manhood, that we grow up in our faith, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is the great aim and quest that each of us would be journeying along until the fullness of Christ, that we are growing deeper, more into Christ, that he is reflected more in us, that less of us is coming out and it is more Jesus so why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Said another way that we can look in at the lies of the world, the doctrinal lies of the world, the lies of Satan, and clearly call it out and say, nope, that isn't right. I'm not believing that. I'm not falling into that. I'm not letting my family fall into that. Uh, I'm not letting our church fall into that. We're going to stand for truth. 
Rather, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And you go, what does it mean to grow up in every way? Well, one author puts it this way. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That as we begin to operate in the structure that he has in place, then we will grow up into the fullness of Christ in all of those ways toward each other. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, each and every one of us, is working properly, makes the body grow. Now, I say grow, I mean deeper and wider. We grow deeper into Christ, we grow wider as more people join. Makes the body grow so that what? So that it feels important? No. So that people know its name? No. So that like, we have celebrity pastors or celebrity worship leaders? so that it grows itself up in love, so that we get better at loving each other, at taking care of each other, of sending flowers when you're sick, of having a family fund when you're in need, of praying for each other, of checking in on each other, of stopping and saying, how can I help? Of challenging each other when we see each other making poor decisions, sinful choices, of holding each other accountable, of encouraging each other, of celebrating with each other, of sacrificing for each other, of making sure that everyone knows you're not alone in whatever it is that you're walking through. And by bringing the good news of the hope of the gospel to the world. That's the mission. That's the call. Said another way, answer to the fourth question, what is the result? It is this, a loving, doctrinally sound, Christ-glorifying, saint-edifying, people-serving, gospel-advancing family that continues to grow deeper and wider. That's our prayer. Let's pray. Father, I trust that you have brought to this church family all that we need currently, every gift, every personality, every heart. So Father, I pray that in your timing, you would prompt every person to operate and to work properly, as the text says. And may this always be rooted in love as we serve one another. Father, raise up all that will be needed in the future. Help us to always operate in grace, peace, and wisdom within the structure that you have formed so that we might enjoy the beautiful benefits of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.